Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Laurent Pintoni, who is the author of Bedroom Beats and B-Sides, Instrumental Hip Hop and Electronic Music at the Turn of the Century. Thanks for being here with me, Laurent. Thank you very much for having me. So I want you to start by talking about how you this book came to be. Sure. Um, <laughs> I know it's a law. It's a very long process, right? It's over 10 years of writing, but pretty much. Yeah, it's a it's a convoluted story. Um, I guess the short of it is that I, the short of it is that it's the result of like, pretty much the entirety of my adult, like teenage and adult experiences with music. Uh, but more concretely, it started about 13 years ago when I was living in Japan. Um, and it started with kind of this idea about instrumental hip hop and electronic music, um, things that were happening back then, um, and which I was kind of witnessing from a distance because I was living in Tokyo at the time. And um, even though we had the internet, um, this was kind of peak MySpace era. Um, you know, there was still a degree of like, removal from from physical scenes so to speak so anyways um had this idea this idea became a series of articles for a spanish magazine that i used to write for at the time then in 2009 the ideas behind the article got turned into a mix which i did with two friends of mine which was kind of trying to i've always i've, I've often felt like sometimes words aren't enough and the music kind of speaks for itself and the mix was kind of just kind of that. It was it was trying to kind of get this idea across with just the music. Um, and this was an idea with regards to kind of where instrumental hip-hop was at that time, so late 2000s, and its relationship to uh, things that happened in the 90s and which I guess was the sound the hip-hop sound that I had grown up with, which is known as kind of the boom-bap sound or the boom-bap aesthetic, um, which is kind of predominantly attached to producers and artists from New York, New York City or from the East Coast. Um, so anyways, we did the mix that was that was cool. And then a couple of years later, I had a friend, who'd, friend of a friend who had moved to Berlin and opened up a, um, a space there and was asking people, who were interested in coming to do presentations on kind of like modern music history. And and the idea kind of through that, I kind of got the idea of taking the mix and, and the articles that had inspired the mix and kind of turning all those into a presentation and sort of kind of pushing the ball, the, the big rock further up the mountain. Um, so I did that in like early 2011, no, early 2012. That was January 2012. Um, that was in Berlin. And then I took that around in Europe. I did a presentation in Limerick in Ireland. did one in Cologne in Germany and one in Italy. And it was uh, during my time in Berlin, the first time around, that I kind of randomly met somebody. And they were like, I kind of told them why I was there. And they were like, oh, you should write a book. And the idea felt very odd and alien. But then as... I kept doing these presentations and sort of like thinking about all the things that I couldn't mention in a kind of hour. It was like an hour and a half presentation. So as I thought about all the things that I couldn't fit into that, the idea of a book started to make more sense. And so that's when that started. And that was 2012. And then it took another eight years for it to uh, be fully realized. And that was largely because of life, amongst other things. And also, I kind of didn't know what I was doing. Um, but the eight years, kind of 2012 to when the book was published, which was two months ago, um, and I finished writing it in August this year. So that eight-year period was really just 
actual research, uh, a lot of traveling, a lot of interviewing, and a lot of reading, researching, writing, not being happy with the writing, giving up, trying again, giving up, trying again, until I just kind of did it. That's a very not sure version of the story. You set this up as sort of a mixtape. So can you talk a little bit about how you've sort of structured the book um, your and sort of the setup of it? Sure. Um, I guess part of the... Um, I really struggled for a long time with how to present the story. Um, I guess this is as good a time as any to kind of explain to people what the book is actually about. Um, the short of it is the book is uh, an attempt at sort of um, telling the stories behind the evolution of the kind of what's been referred to as instrumental hip hop and instrumental electronic music, which sounds a bit like, a, I guess, an oxymoron, but um, the kind of instrumental movements of the last 30 years. Um, and for a very long time, I struggled with how to present it because essentially this is a story about hip hop and it's a story about electronic music, but they're not separate. They are the same thing. Hip hop is electronic music. Electronic music is hip hop. And so it's this thing of like, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I don't know, for some reason, I always kind of felt that trying to explain it in a very straightforward manner. I don't know if for some reason it didn't kind of quite connect, but eventually I kind of got over that particular hurdle. Um, and so the, the way, I guess one of the ways that I got over that hurdle was by, by deciding to treat the book not as a traditional book. And so the idea was to treat the book as a, in a sense, in a sense, as a, in, in, in a way as a piece of music and the format for that is um, it's actually a beat tape not a mixtape um, the beat tape is the kind of most essential format to the story that I'm telling and for those who don't know a beat tape is basically a sort of collection of demos that producers in hip hop largely uh, would use to both practice that is they would make beats and put them on the tape and that was kind of like their gymnastics so to speak um but then also was used as you know a way to shop your business around so that is you know once you had a beat tape that you felt was perhaps most representative of of where you were at a certain point in time or whatever you would use that to pass to anrs at labels or to give to mcs and and so the beat tape is kind of uh, this integral part of the story and it has evolved over the last 30 years into a kind of release format of its own where like originally it was this thing that was kind of very private and only a few people would have you know a certain producers beat tapes and it was very much used either for personal use or for like business use and then all and this largely happened through the democratization of music making and the kind of communication technology that the internet provided, um, the beat tape kind of then became a, a format of its own. That is, people were just releasing beat tapes and people were buying beat tapes and then it was just like a thing and now it's very common and you actually see it in a lot of places that you wouldn't expect to see it, so to speak. So you'll see certain musicians that are not necessarily producers, you know, doing beat tapes or whatever. Um, so yeah, so the beat tape just felt like it just felt like an easy way to tell the story by freeing me from all the things that I was worried about, essentially. Um, so I decided that the book, the book itself is a collection of beat tapes. Originally, the book itself was going to be a beat tape and the different chapters were kind of going to be tracks, but that original idea sort of fell by the wayside um, for various reasons. Um, so it, ultimately, what I decided to do is that every chapter in the book is a beat tape. Um, and what that means is that I'm giving myself the permission to skip around and jump and do things that narratively speaking probably aren't you know super common uh secondly it was also a way for me to use um the music that i'm talking about as a way to split 
narrative. So in you know you would traditionally in the book you have a chapter and then you might have like um, subheaders that divide the chapter into various sections. Um, and generally these are titles that are relevant to whatever you're talking about. Um, and I decided to to do that, but that the subheaders would be track titles and that these track titles would generally be relevant to what I'm talking about and that they would also be kind of presented with the name of the producer responsible for the track. So not the artist necessarily, like, you know, if it was a, for example, the song by a hip hop artist, it wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be like Buster Rhymes or whatever. It would be the person who produced it, who whose name would be attached to the track. And that was a way to, again, further sort of allow me to do things that I wanted to do with regards to mentioning things that I didn't necessarily have time to go into details about. And then also essentially offer the reader a way to soundtrack the listening. Um, so yeah, so that's basically what I did. Um, I decided, I mean, the way that I explain it at the beginning of the book is that books can sometimes feel very stuffy and straight and be tapes of fun. And I kind of wanted this book to be fun. And so I decided to treat it like that. And that's definitely something that I feel, you know, comes from my, it comes from hip hop and the fact that hip hop has taught me as a, as a person, as a fan, as a listener to be kind of irreverential with subject matter, you know, and to, to be, to have fun with things and not take things so seriously, I guess. And, and so you've got like 21 different tapes in your book, mm-hmm. um, but, and you sort of talk about some of what you talk about in tape one, but I'm hoping you can talk a little, because I think they're both important for the book, um, about King Tubby and Ross G, um, who you mention in the first tape. So can you talk a little bit about both of them and sort of their impact on <clears throat> the instrumental hip hop and, and just hip hop in general? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so um, I guess one of the things that I forgot to mention when I answered the last question is that so the, the chapters are, are beat tapes and, and the chapters are titled after albums that do exist. And again, that's another way to sort of like add another layer of sort of intertextuality to the whole thing. Um, so in this case, what you're talking about is, yeah, the first, the first chapter, the first tape in the book um, tries to give a, uh, a potted history of the producer in music. Um, the producer in music is sort of like very much a, one of the main uh, through lines of the book. The book's about instrumental hip hop and actually music. It's about this idea of the producer as artist and it's about um, technology and how technology sort of allowed this evolution of both the music and, and the producer as artist. Um, Tubby is important in that regard and Tubby is really a, a kind of proxy for the Jamaican music industry of its time. So, you know, I don't want it to feel like it's, it's just Tubby on its own. It's Tubby, it's Lee Perry, it's Jammy, it's all these incredible producers and engineers and musicians, um, Sly and Robbie, people like that. But um, yeah, so Tubby and Jamaica are important because I guess the way that I put it in that chapter and and it's kind of a, a through line also in the book is that you have on one side the evolution of so you know you have a sort of parallel evolution of the producer in music since the kind of mid 20th century um, and on one side essentially you have the kind of western uh, version of that evolution and that's people like George Martin uh, who was responsible for the Beatles for producing the Beatles records people like Led Zeppelin, uh, as well as, you know, um, all these experimental um, artists who worked in the early days of what came to be known as electronic music. So people like uh, Didier Derbyshire, who was at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop in England. In the US, you had the San Francisco, I believe it's called the San Francisco Tape Center. In France, you had... Uh, another equivalent, the name of which escapes me, but it was like France, Germany, England, America were the sort of like centers for 
you know, music concrete, tape experiments, all these early experiments in synthesizers, in electronic music. And that, you know, really helped push what, you know, it helped push where we are musically along. But I think um, it's a very sort of traditionally, it's a very sort of traditional approach that has kind of very cerebral. It's very cerebral. It's very much about, you know, this idea of, of practice and, and all these kind of fancy ideas. Um, and then on the flip side of that, you have similar developments in Jamaica, where in the West, people are turning the studio into an instrument to make pop records. Whilst in Jamaica, they're turning the studio as an instrument, they're turning the studio into an instrument to make music that for them is a, a liberation from what's happening in their day-to-day life, which was, you know, Jamaica is very kind of, was going through a lot at that period. This is like in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and the music was a release from the kind of day-to-day pressure of politics, of the reality of like colonization and decolonization. Um, and so with Toby, you know, who's wildly, who's generally heralded as um, the kind of godfather of dub music, and certainly one of its most important figures, what he managed and what him and his peers managed was to to take the pressure of their daily life and turn that into music that was very impactful and that used the studio as an instrument. But whereas in the West, it was quite common to use all these tools to layer things, they were actually stripping things back. And uh, I make a reference to, I think it's Brian Eno who wrote about this kind of early on in the 70s, and he was talking about dub as sculpture, where you're basically chipping away at the kind of musical material. Um, so that's the importance of Tubby. Tubby and dub really kind of gave us, gave modern music a an aesthetic that is super important in how it treats the studio as an instrument, especially the mixing desk, especially the use of effects, but also how it kind of treats this idea of music as a living thing that you can manipulate. Um, so that's Toby's importance, that's Jamaica's importance to the story. Um, as for Ras G, uh, G is somebody who um, I was kind of, it was a friend of mine. Um, he passed away last year in July. Uh, it was uh, unexpected. Um, and it kind of took many of us who knew him by surprise. G was a musician, DJ, producer, worked at a record store in Los Angeles. Uh, it was LA native, born and bred. And he was a part of the musical movement that the book um, deals with. And G was somebody that I met early on in my research. Um, I interviewed him like three or four times. We became sort of like friends. We hung out a bunch of times, both in Europe and in the US. And he was somebody who, uh, in a way, I always felt like he kind of understood what I was trying to do. It was this kind of thing where um, it really felt like he kind of got where I was coming from. And when I heard that he had passed, it really shook me. And on top of that, I was actually in the, I was writing about him when it happened. And I had spoken to him like a week before he passed. And so his death kind of really helped kick me into gear in terms of getting the book finished. I dedicated the book to him. And he is kind of mentioned at the beginning. And then again, the, the last uh, sort of chapter is dedicated to him. Uh, it's a kind of series of letters that I wrote to him. Um, but actually, G is kind of definitely related to Tubby and people like that in the sense that he was somebody who made use of his instrument, made use of his tools in a very sort of, in a very dub way. He didn't overthink things. He worked with feeling a lot. He was very much about stripping things down rather than adding. Um, and so, you know, but I think he's important as a sort of, um, as a spirit guide if you will, for both myself trying to tell the story and for the story itself. So another place that comes up and is sort of important throughout the book is Detroit. (laughs) Yep. And so can you talk a bit about um, Detroit and sort of the role of Detroit in in this narrative? Yeah, sure. Um, Sorry. 
so Detroit is one of a few kind of, I guess, key geographical points in our story. Um, I mean, it's it's funny to me because, you know, um, I'm French originally um, and I've lived most of my life in, in England and America and abroad. Um, like, to me, Detroit is so obviously important because I think if you have any sort of basic knowledge of the history of electronic music, you should know why Detroit is important. Um, but I also, as you know, as I came to learn in my life, like for a lot of American people, like that's, that's not a given at, at all. You know, where I come from in Europe, there's this sort of, in Europe, there's perhaps more of a tendency to like um, celebrate the things that come from country X, Y, or Z, or city X, Y, or Z, or whatever. Um, certainly, I think in America, that hasn't always been the case when it, when it comes to modern culture and modern music. And so Detroit, Chicago, people, places like that um, are not necessarily obvious to American people as, as hugely important. Um, but Detroit is hugely important. Um, it's hugely important because, because it's a city that's full of musicians, it's incredible. Um, as a friend of mine put it, it's the keep it real capital of America. Um, people there are always doing things. They're always sort of active in each other's business when it comes to music. That means, you know, exchanging ideas, collaborating, playing with each other, performing with each other, supporting each other. And so Detroit has, you know, from Motown and even before all the way to today just been this incredible musical engine to kind of use the the, the very overused um, car metaphor. Um, in the case of my particular story, um, you know, this is about it's about instrumental music and Detroit has had a huge contribution to that through obviously techno um, but also through various individuals who have contributed greatly to the kind of modern canon of both instrumental hip hop and electronic music, uh, one of which is James Yancey, who is best known to most people as JD or J Dilla, and who is sadly no longer with us. Um, so that's kind of Detroit's importance, and, and from kind of that, it reverberates throughout the sort of Detroit metropolitan area and its suburbs, um, Ann Arbor, which is um, about 40 minutes outside of Detroit. And we believe is where the uh, University of Michigan campus is. Um, it's an, a kind of also an important city. And this is kind of like relationship between Ann Arbor and Detroit, where there's a kind of constant conversation between the two places both physically and kind of musically. Uh, there are artists that have come out of the area and labels, um, including Ghostly. International is one of those labels. Uh, Dabri is one of these artists, a guy called Tad Molinix, um, who goes by Dabri and a bunch of other names. Um, and so there's this kind of dynamic between the two things. Um, and so Detroit is very much kind of central to the story for that reason. Um, and, you know, it's... <clears throat> I guess it's this thing of Detroit gives a lot, has given a lot, and continues to give a lot to the world. But I think it's it often gets kind of like sidetracked because it's not as sexy as a lot of other places. I think the same could be said about Chicago to a degree. Um, you know, there's a sort of wider conversation about post-industrial cities to be had there, which I don't really get into too much in the book. Um, but, for example, um, there's a book also by the same publisher that put mine out, Velocity Press, came out last year called Join the Future. I think you spoke to Matt who wrote it. And Join the Future is about what happened in Sheffield in England and the sort of sounds that came out of Sheffield that were inspired by, by techno amongst other things. And, and so Sheffield is also a post-industrial city, and I think there's very much something there with kind of these post-industrial cities that kind of gave very important contributions to modern music, but which by virtue of 
of becoming dilapidated and abandoned uh, socially, politically, economically. Um, they don't have the pull of like a New York City or Los Angeles or London or Tokyo or other media centers, so to speak. And there are some other cities that you sort of mentioned throughout, like you just mentioned Los Angeles, right? So you talk about Los Angeles as well and the role of Los Angeles. So um, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about LA or some of the other cities that you saw that were really sort of instrumental to this movement um, and to this music. Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so as I said, Detroit is kind of one of, of various geographical locations um, in the book. I think, uh, in a, in a sense, the, the, the key geographical locations are like um, this Bristol, London, and Manchester in England. Um, I kind of t- touch mainly on London. I touch a little bit on Bristol and a little bit on Manchester, but uh, I wasn't able to kind of... Manchester comes back into the picture later on, and I wasn't able to, to get to that, unfortunately. Um, then you have uh, Paris in France, um, and then you have Berlin in Germany, Cologne as well. And again, I wasn't able to make too much of those two things because they're kind of more central to what happened in the 2010s. And I'd originally intended for the book to also cover the 2010s quite in depth, but just ran out of space. Um, and then in the US, sorry, in North America, there is uh, Montreal in Canada, Detroit, New York. Uh, Miami, Chicago, uh, Los Angeles. Um, Miami, Chicago is kind of like an axis that that is relevant to uh, what is known as IDM, intelligent dance music, uh, which was one of the many scenes that kind of helped push this instrumental sound forward. Um, and there was a sort of dynamic happening between Miami. Miami is important because of the Winter Music Conference that used to take place there. It was always a kind of um, industry city, so to speak. Chicago um, also sort of involved in it because like Detroit, it's, as I mentioned, sort of like a, it's just a music city, you know, starting with house music, obviously, um, in the case of our story. But then the whole stuff, the whole things that, the whole bunch of things that happened in the 90s with uh, what kind of came known as post-rock. So this was kind of like the indie rock music with, electronic touches um and then los angeles is arguably the most it's arguably the most important kind of city in the book um that sort of happened by chance but also because it's just it's something about la where there's just a lot of people in this story that are either based in LA or worked in LA or, or are attached to LA by virtue of where or how they release their music. Um, and then also I ended up moving to LA um, in 2017 and lived there for three years. And I think I, that was kind of, that happened by fluke, but I think that kind of impacted me quite a bit. Um, but yeah, LA is important, really, again, by kind of the sheer volume of, of music and artists that were concentrated in and around it. And, and then more practically, um, in the case of our story, the way that the story develops from the 90s to the end of the 2000s um, and on into the 2010s, um, LA becomes a focus because it is where there's a specific club night. It was called Loen Theory. Um, that ran weekly from uh, October 2006 until two years ago. I think it was August 20, it was either August 2018 or 2019, I forget. I think it was 2019. Um, So they ran for about 12 years straight every week. And really what that did was create a, a place where you knew that every Wednesday, if you were in Los Angeles, you could go there and you would see the same people um, and by that, I mean artists, DJs, producers, label people. Uh, and you would hear the freshest new music that was kind of within this realm of, of beats, what I call beat culture in the book. So kind of instrumental hip hop, electronic music. Um, and, you know, that's a very powerful thing. And it happened in London. It happened in New York. It happened in Montreal. It happened in Glasgow. 
Um, it happened in a bunch of other places, but in LA, it happened regularly for 12 years. And that's really where the city sort of rose in importance. And then, you know, there's a whole, like Detroit, there's a wealth of history in LA before it. So that's kind of what made LA very special. I mean, I often joke that I could have written a book just about LA and probably got away with it. But I, I was very intent to try and kind of place LA and Detroit and these other cities in a wider context of, of a kind of global movement, which is really, to me, what I witnessed by virtue of my own experiences, which is, you know, I was born and raised in, in Europe, in France and in Italy. I went to university in England. I lived in England for a while, then I lived in Japan for a while, then moved back to Europe, then I traveled all around Europe. And, and I, I witnessed this music. I witnessed what I talk about in the book firsthand. And I saw it everywhere. I saw it all the way, you know, I saw it in Lithuania. I saw it um, in North America. I saw it in Asia. Um, and so I wanted to try and zoom out as much as I could, but obviously also like narratively speaking, you know, you have to kind of focus on specific places and LA was definitely one of those. And I mean, certainly arguably one of the more important places in this particular narrative. Um, and I still probably only touched on half of what I wanted to touch on because there's just so much more there. Um, so one of the things that you mentioned when you talked about LA was sort of the club scene. And, and that is another really important aspect, right? The club scene and the shows. Um, so can you talk a bit, pick and choose, like some of the shows or the, the dance halls that you talk about in the book um, that you sort of think are really important or want to highlight? Sure. Um... Yeah, you know, the, the physical aspect of the music was very important. I mean, this is part of the case, part of what the story is about is, is the shift that happened at the turn of the century between, to use some tired cliches, but, you know, the, the analog way of doing things and the digital way of doing things. Um, they're useful cliches for this particular uh, argument. but. Um, you know, this is a story that happens at that shift in time, at that moment in time when everything is shifting. So in the first part of the book, we're in the 90s and everything is still very much the old way of doing things. The internet exists, but it's not hugely influential outside of providing uh, new means of for people to communicate. And then, you know, turn of the century, we have the shift in, in music consumption. And then you start to see how that impacts people financially. Um, and then you start to see how that then leads to a new generation through early social networks like MySpace, developing new ways to communicate, new ways to collaborate, new ways to release, new ways to perform. Um, but throughout all this, despite the kind of importance of the, the internet and, and the laptop and, and all of these kind of digital things, music making software, all of these things, aside from that, there is still a physical element that is people are making these connections digitally but then they're getting together physically. Uh, and that happens in record shops and that happens in nightclubs. Um, and in terms of nightclubs, I mentioned Law in Theory in Los Angeles. That's probably the one that most people would know. But I would argue that there were many others that were just as important, though they were perhaps, well, not perhaps, they were definitely more short-lived. Um, one of the ones that I talk about um, in the book is uh, Plastic People in London, which is actually a nightclub, not a club night. Plastic was arguably as long-lived as Loan because it lasted for about 20 years. Uh, plastic was super important for, for London, uh, and it's where a lot of different scenes kind of came to fruition, including dubstep and grime. Um, more specifically to my story, um, there was a club night in, there's a couple of club nights in Montreal, uh, one was called Bounce Le Gros, um, which was kind of hosted by Gislain Poirier, who's one of the characters in the book. Um, and that was followed by another one called uh, Turbo Crunk. And those ran from like 05 till 2010. Um, they were super important with regards to kind of tapping into what has now become I think it's quite normal for a lot of people, but back then was still pretty fresh, which was to have mm, uh, club nights that 
were very broad in their style and aesthetic of what made kind of club music, you know, so we're talking about kind of popular hip hop, but also underground hip hop. And we're talking about popular dance music, but also kind of underground dance music. And we're talking about things being mashed together and being combined and about new sounds being discovered on the internet and brought into the club, things from South America, things from other parts of North America, things from Europe. Um, so it's kind of this melting pot of what back then was kind of being called global bass and had various other names. It was all obviously anchored by bass. So again, it goes back to Jamaica, it goes back to Tubby. It was all anchored in this kind of Jamaican approach to dubbing, mixing, ensuring that there is a lot of bass in the music. And then by this kind of omnivorous approach to rhythm, to samples, to how to perform. Um, and these guys did it. They did it really hard for like a few years. Um, and many of the people, I was lucky, I, I went there in 2008. I went to Chobo Kronk and it was, it was pretty memorable. Um, so those guys did a lot. And then they had a, they had a sort of equivalent across the pond um, over in Glasgow in Scotland. And this was a night and a collective called Lucky Me who are, are still active. Um, and equally, they were coming at it from this perspective of like, we like hip hop and we like dance music and, and a bunch of other things. And we want to have all of these things coexist together under one roof. And um, that's really what propelled a lot of, this is kind of the end of the story in my book, as I said, I've, this kind of what propels what happens in the 2010s. And, and I was only able to kind of really touch on the 2010s in the last chapter. Um, but then throughout the 2010s, there's a variety of other club nights and festivals and places that kind of carry this. But I think perhaps the, the way in which you can see the legacy of this is in something like Boiler Room, which might be more known to people. Um, you know, this idea that you can have a streaming platform that airs music and performances, DJ sets, live sets, whatever, from everything from house and techno to cumbia and new sounds coming out of Africa and Asia and weird atonal noise stuff and a jazz band and somebody making live beats and, and all of these things coexist in one place and as far as I can tell for the listeners and the viewers there there is no dissonance in a way that there might have been 10, 15, 20 years ago and I think that that's really one of the things that is kind of um, a direct result of what I talk about in my story which is that these places, these club nights that I talk about in the book offered some of the early instances of, of where that happened. And so one of the other sort of important things um, is the role of the DJ and the role of the producer. And so, um, you know, can you talk about a few of those either producers or DJs that you um, think are really important or instrumental to the this sort of story? Sure. Um, yeah, there's a few of them. Um, I think, you know, um, I mentioned JD earlier on, James Yancey. Um, I think, in a sense, the book makes the argument that uh, JD and one of his closest um, allies, you could say, or, or certainly musical friends, musical uh, kin, like musical kin, uh, was a guy called um, Otis Jackson Jr., best known as Madlib. Uh, so Madlib and JD, I think, are, are arguably the sort of figureheads of what the book deals with, which is this idea of a modern beat culture and kind of beat-centric music. Um, that's by virtue of of who they are. And by that, I mean that they're... So Jay's passed, but I'm just going to talk to him. I'm going to talk about him as if he was still with us because Madlib is still with us. Um, they're very... They were never... These are two producers who were never 
in it for the, the fame and the, the celebrity and all of these things that we might associate with a career in the arts, they very much are the embodiment of art for art's sake. Um, and what that meant is that, you know, they, they found their voice and, and it, they are unmistakably them. And in the case of Madlib, that continues through to this day. Um, he just released a jazz album the other day. Um, in the case of JD, that manifested in a variety of ways, uh, through mainly through the fact that he is, he remains, you know, I think it's largely undeniable, one of the most important producers in hip hop history to this day. I mean, you know, if we were to make a pantheon of, of hip hop producers, Jay would be in the top three. And I think if he isn't, then there's a problem with your pantheon because stylistically, I mean, the range was incredible. Um, he, he was just able to do things that most people had no conception of how to do, like from a technical point of view. Um, so these two really helped to push things forward and, and they really kind of rose together. Um, they both began in the nineties and then they met at the end, they met at the early two, the early two thousands. And then they had about five years together before Jay passed. Um, but their time together really kind of helped push them forward as the sort of like figureheads that people were looking to. And then, you know, that continues to this day. I mean, the whole thing that's happening right now around what's called lo-fi hip hop, Jay is often mentioned as one of the pioneers of that sound, even though that's kind of a weird historical faux pas, so to speak. I mean, he wasn't the godfather of that, but he, it, I use that as an example. Like he's, he's still, even though he's been dead 15 years, he's still inspiring people rightly or wrongly. Um, to make music, to produce, to make beats. Um, and, you know, that torch of theirs kind of still shines. And then there are others that sort of pick that up because, again, every kind of movement needs a figurehead, whether they want to be one or not. And so in the book, I talk about how at the end of the 2000s and into the 2010s, a new kind of generation of figureheads emerges and, and they're sort of represented by a by another two people. Uh, one is Flying Lotus, Stephen Ellison from Los Angeles, and the other one is uh, Ross Burchard, Ross Burchard, whose um, artist name is Hudson Mohawk, who's from Glasgow. Um, and in their own way, they also represent the kind of continuation of, of this idea of being the people that are most well-known, uh, arguably have the highest profile. And so they're the ones that everybody sort of turns to as a as a sort of reference point. Um, even though, again, they're also both, you know, not necessarily putting themselves out there as as anything other than than who they are. Um, so there's those are some of the people that the book touches on. I mean, there's there's so many more. It's kind of really hard to pinpoint it. Um, I conducted over 150 interviews for the book. I probably only used about half of those. Uh, there's a whole lot of people that I wanted to kind of touch on that I didn't. But I think perhaps what I can say is that, you know, I use these names because they're the names that people will probably well, most likely to know. But I think that you get a better picture of why they matter by looking at everybody around them. And there's just so much wealth of talent and approaches and ideas in their orbit and that kind of constitutes you know the rest of the book there are people like um like Daedalus, like ross g uh mike slot um fulgence in france um the people in japan uh, dj mitsuda beats is one of them uh people in montreal gislain poirier who i mentioned that there are another guy called six two um who's originally from halifax i believe um you know there are people um everywhere and that's what's really, to me, interesting. And I hope that that's kind of what the book manages to get across. Are there any of the um, tapes, the, the chapters that you um, want to sort of highlight or talk about? Oh, I know we've talked about a number of things that sort of happened throughout or things, but I'm wondering if there's any specific um, tapes in the book that you want to speak on. Um, that's a good question. 
I'm, I'm kind of looking at it right now. I mean, I think ultimately I'm proud of all of the stories that I managed to get across. Um, I think, you know, there's, um, there's some of the tapes definitely are more perhaps personal. Uh, so I'm thinking, for example, um, so the first tape is kind of interwoven with my a story of kind of a personal story of how I discovered the music. And then tape 19 on Memories of the Future also has a kind of personal story. Um, those, and then the, the last one, which is dedicated to Rashji, um, those are very important to me um, for these kind of personal reasons. Um, but overall, no, I, you know, I, I'm proud of everything. I think, again, like, I know that there are limitations, not limitations, I know that there are um, shortfalls in the book, and I, I try to be very upfront about those um, in the last chapter. You know, I, I'm not shying away from my own biases as a writer and researcher. I mean, if, if spending 10 years, 10 plus years on this project has taught me anything, is that it's given me, a, it's given me plenty of occasions to, to stare my biases in the face and, and come to understand them for what they are and to in turn try to, you know, recognize them and, and, and face them. And so, for example, I talk about this in the book, you know, there's um, one of the big things about this story is the imbalance between uh, male and female protagonists. And, and on one side, that definitely stemmed from uh, a bias on my part originally. But at the same time, there is also just in this particular story that I'm telling, very much for the first 20 years, a lack of women as performers. There are slightly more women, as always, in the back. And that's kind of a recurring story with a lot of, of the music kind of up until the past decade. Um, and, you know, that was one of the things where I kind of, I had wished that I had been able to do more about the 2010s because in the 2010s, it feels like that balance is kind of slightly becoming to be redressed. Uh, but equally, you know, there is also a kind of bias as to just me being a, a white guy from Europe. And so I see this, you know, through my own personal experience. And one of the things that I mentioned is that I hope that by writing this and getting it out there, it shows to people that, that these stories are, are, are just as worthy of, of a book as, as anything else. I mean, for me, one of the things that was that always amazed me uh, as I was going through this, is that nobody wrote this book before me. Like, I was really shocked that, that nobody wrote this book before me because to me it was like, why wouldn't you want to write this book? And I feel like, you know, that's probably so many, I have no doubt that people, a lot of people feel like that. A lot of writers, a lot of people who either want to be writers or are fans or just engage critically in music, and especially people who are not men, and who are not white men probably feel that way and and it's like you can do it you know and i just hope that that by by doing it the way that i did it i you know it's kind of like a stone and there are other people that can come and put in other stones next to it and that helps to contribute to a, a better edifice of of stories because again that's also what's really important is that the stories are disappearing because people are dying and because the history is being erased uh, through various means, um, certainly technology, the kind of technological creep that we're living through is, is one of those things. Um, you know, and that's another thing that's super important for me and that doing this has really brought into focus. Like when, when G died, it was this thing of like, he is gone. I can't talk to him anymore. I can't get any more stories out of him. And the stories that I've got, in certain cases, I was the only one who spoke to him about specific things that happened to him. And so, like, you know, there's this sort of sense of, of gravity all of a sudden. And I think that's only going to accelerate because of, of what's happening. I mean, just literally, I think it was yesterday or the day before, um, I learned that uh, Leon, this, this guy called Leon Chu passed away and he was... He is a very important figure in the London music scene. He basically was running a, a dub plate, a, a kind of dub. Uh, he was running a, um, 
a place called uh, Music House that cut dub plates for uh, London's dance music DJ scene for 20 years. So, you know, this is a man who who had a hand in in music first, kind of firstly in modern music history in England, in the United Kingdom, and and he's gone. And there are two interviews with him online. And so that's a, a huge repository of knowledge that's just gone. And those are the things that really preoccupy me today. So I've totally gone around the corner from your question, but basically to me, like to bring it back, you know, the book is about trying to preserve some of these stories that are now gone, like G story and hopefully show that if people have stories or if people are interested in stories, there is a value to these stories being captured. And So we've been talking for a while and, and you sort of get at my um, sort of final question I usually ask is sort of what are you, what are you working on next? Is there something, you know, I know this just came out um, and we're in a very interesting point in history in our country well in the world right yeah um but is there something you're working on now or something that is going on with this book that you sort of want to that final shout out yeah yeah no um i um i am not working on anything per se i uh, left the u.s i moved back to europe for a little bit um for personal reasons um i've gone back to school actually and i'm studying um I've gone back to school to try and study archival as it happens. So yes, what I was kind of talking about in the last question is very much sort of, I'm very interested in archival right now and not archival in the traditional kind of boring stuffy sense, but in the sense of like, how do we preserve the history of of what we have right now? Because to me, things that have happened in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years are just as important as what's happened in the last 100 years or whatever, or 100 years ago. I should say. So that's kind of what I'm focused on right now. Um, and that means I've gone back to school and that's its own challenge. But um, I, I'm not working on anything per se. I have a, I, I'm going to make most of the research from the book available online at some point, uh, hopefully starting this month. Uh, if not, it'll be top of the year uh, and it will be free. Um, my idea with that is, again, to try and sort of recorrect a little bit of the mistakes and things that that occurred in the in the writing of this i mean this was the first book that i ever wrote um and i I said i made a fair amount of mistakes along the way Uh, and i also have a lot of interviews that i wasn't really able to use that i want to be able to share and and in doing so maybe make a case a sort of test case for for this idea that archives that we we need to preserve our archives better and that i think music journalists in particular could really stand to think about what it is that they're sitting on in terms of their life's work and all these interviews and all these conversations and all these things that have accumulated over the years and and the value that that has and and the value that it might have if everything was pulled together in a meaningful way to both preserve it but then also make it available to other people to use to push things forward. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, so we'll see. Like you said, it's a interesting time overall. And there's definitely a lot of distractions, uh, like staying alive. But uh, the book seems to have been doing, so far the book's been received really well by both readers and the people who are featured in it. So I'm very grateful for that. And like I said, I hope that it um, inspires people and makes them think and makes them listen. So it's been really great talking with you. Um, Again, this is Bedroom Beats and B-Sides by Laurent Fintoni. So thank you so much for speaking with me for New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you for having me.